Matthew 19, verses 13 through to 30. Then little children were brought, brought to Jesus for him to place his hands on them and pray for them. But the disciples rebuked those who brought them. Jesus said, Let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. When he, he had placed his hands on them, he went on from there. Now a rich man came to Jesus and asked, Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Why do you ask me about what is good? Jesus replied, There is only one who is good. If you want to enter life, obey the commandments. Which ones? The man inquired. Jesus replied, Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not give false testimony. Honour your father and mother, and love your neighbour as yourself. All these I have kept, the young man said. What do I still lack? Jesus answered, If you want to be perfect, go sell all your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. Then Jesus said to his disciples, I tell you the truth, it is, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished and asked, Who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them with, with man this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. Jesus answered him, We have left everything to follow you. What will be there be for us? Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, at the renewal of, thing, of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel, and everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or fathers or father or mothers or hundreds of times as much will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and many who are last will be first. Last Sunday, Peter resumed our series of sermons on the, uh, the Gospel of Matthew, and we'll be looking at Matthew over the next couple of months as we uh, continue to work our way through. Uh, today, today's passage is the second part of Matthew 19, and as Peter mentioned earlier, I want to take this over two weeks, because there is so much in it that it's not uh, a passage that I just want to skim over. Uh, today what I want to do is focus on one part of the passage and next week we're going to look at the whole schema, uh, the, whole, the, the, the whole lot of the passage of uh, Mark 19, 13 to 30. But uh, today's passage is important because I want to speak about evangelism. Evangelism, of course, uh, is uh, something which we need to be constantly thinking about. Uh, as we seek to 
uh, teach others, to help others to understand the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. One of the problems that we have in our contemporary church life, however, is a lot of uh, there is a lot of false evangelism that is going on in churches. Uh, the message which many churches today are promoting to non-Christians is a message about fulfilling your life's potential, fulfilling your potential in terms of your career, your marriage, your family life, and in terms of your finances. There are churches which conduct seminars for business people, teaching them how to get rich. That may sound extraordinary to you. I received a brochure just uh, a few weeks ago inviting me to a ministry conference where one of the keynote speakers' only qualification was that he is a mentor to some of the top corporate executives in the United States of America. Now, given how the top corporate executives in the United States of America have managed their companies lately, I'm not sure that this guy has much credibility, even on that basis. But churches are doing this sort of thing because they want people to think that God is relevant to their life. God, of course, is ultimately relevant to their lives, but not in these ways. And they want to attract more people to come to church. Now, of course, in a very real sense, we would want to say that becoming a Christian does mean that your potential in life uh, will be fulfilled, but not in these ways. And I'll speak more about that next week. But what these churches present is a half-truth. And what happens is when you present a half-truth as the full truth, what you've actually presented is an untruth. Their message is man-centred, it is not God-centred. They certainly talk a whole lot about God, but their heresy is more in terms not so much of what they do say, but what they don't say. The important doctrines that they do not uh, impress upon people particularly the doctrines of sin, of judgment, and of repentance. But this is not a new phenomenon. Uh, during the week as I was preparing uh, for this passage, I read uh, two books. Uh, one of those books was written 40 years ago. The other book was a compilation of some lectures that were given 60 years ago. And both of the authors uh, were pointing out that in their own day that there were churches that were doing this kind of thing. Now, back in those days, it's not that the churches were full on for promoting wealth and uh, success and so on, although I might add that the prosperity gospel commenced back then in the 1950s. It was that they were more that they were bending over backwards in all sorts of other ways in order to make the Christian life seem to be something which was much easier and uh, very palatable in order to attract people uh, into church. But that is the exact opposite of what we see in Jesus. Uh, in today's passage, Matthew 19, it would be great if you had that open in front of you. In Matthew 19, we have recorded for us 
an important example of Jesus doing the work of true evangelism. Now, verse 16 sets the scene. Uh, A man has approached Jesus and this man comes to Jesus with a question. The question is, Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Now, what a great question that is. What a terrific opportunity. I mean, how many times has it happened to you? (laughs) It's not the sort of thing that happens every day, is it? That someone will approach you knowing you're a Christian and say, help me, what do I do to get eternal life? It doesn't happen very often here in Australia. Uh, I think in my whole Christian life, probably half a dozen times that someone's approached me and seriously wanted to ask about that question. Now, we know a few things about this man. Uh, He's often referred to as being the rich young ruler, and there's a reason for that. Uh, If you have a look at verse 20, you'll see that he is described as being young. So he's young. In verse 22, he's described as being wealthy. And Luke, in his gospel, when he records this particular Uh, exchange, he calls him a ruler, Uh, possibly a ruler in a synagogue, but whatever the case, he was a man who uh, was in a position of authority. And so he is the rich young ruler. And he's a nice man as well. Did you notice how he addressed Jesus in verse 20? When he approaches Jesus, he refers to him as teacher or rabbi. Now, Uh, That uh, was a a term which was a term of respect. Uh, Jesus, after all, was a carpenter and an itinerant preacher. He wasn't a schooled rabbi, but this man respected Jesus and referred to him as teacher, rabbi. And so, in many ways, we can see that he is a very impressive young man. In fact, um, if someone like this man turned up in church... Uh, next Sunday and sat next to you and started asking you questions, said that he really wanted to become a Christian and perhaps join our church, what would you be thinking? How would you be feeling about that? Apart from wondering, well, what, how am I going to answer his questions? And that's another thing. We still need to talk about that, don't we? But I, I, I guess that uh, many of us would be saying, great, great. Wouldn't it be fantastic if a person like this man became a Christian and joined our church? I mean, wouldn't he be a terrific asset? You know, we'd get him discipled and teach him, you know, a basic course in the Bible and we'd have him leading a Bible study before you know it and uh, he's obviously got good management skills. We'd get him onto the community management, help him, you know, he'd help us run the finance. What a great person to see join our church. Now, isn't it a shame that we are so worldly? Isn't it a shame that we don't value people equally, just like God values people, whether they're rich or poor, whether they've they've been highly successful or not successful? Jesus and God values people equally, but yet we so often don't, because we're worldly in our thinking. We think that because a person is successful in the world, that somehow... You know, if only they became a Christian, that um, you know they would make a huge contribution to the kingdom of God. 
we're looking at the outward form rather than the inward reality. And we're tempted to uh, bend over backwards to make it easy for people like that to become a Christian. I mean, you know, with this guy, you don't have to bait him. You don't even have to bait him with misleading promises about a successful life because he's already got a successful life and uh, he's made the approach to you. But obviously Jesus didn't understand very much about modern evangelism because look at how Jesus handles this situation. In verse 17, the first thing that Jesus does is he rebukes the man. Do you see that? He says to him, why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. Now, this is probably not quite the answer that this young man is expecting. But what Jesus is doing here is he's saying, look, before we start talking about you and your desire for eternal life, let's just go back a couple of steps. Let's talk about God. There's a good starting point. I mean, there is only one person who is truly good, and that is God. Now, Jesus is not being unkind here. In Mark's Gospel, uh, chapter 10, uh, Mark tells us that Jesus that Jesus really loved this man. Um, but you see, the man has come to Jesus with a concern about himself and his eternal future, and Jesus will address that. But at this point, what he does is he turns that conversation around from being a conversation about the man and his future to being a conversation about God and God's glory. Because that is the foundation point of the gospel. Uh, I was talking to a non-Christian friend just a few days ago, and uh, <clears throat> it was a easy leading conversation because he said to me, so Scott, what have you been doing today? So well, actually I've been preparing this talk from the Bible about this guy that goes up to Jesus and asks how he can get eternal life, if you really want to know what I've been doing today. And as the conversation progressed, we talked about the man, my, 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 about my friend. And he said to me, he said, look, I am basically a good person. Uh, I said to him, well, I think that's because you are rating yourself in comparison to the other people that you know. Whereas what you should be doing is rating yourself in comparison to God. Right? See, we have been made in the image of God, haven't we? And it's only when we take ourselves, take our eyes off ourselves and the other people around us and actually start putting our eyes upon God and thinking about God and who he is and what he is like and how holy, how perfect he is, it's only when we do that that we're ever going to have a hope of understanding how we stand in relation to him and just how, uh, how sinfully rebellious we actually are, how far we've fallen short of his glory. We compare, when we compare ourselves to other people, we're using the wrong benchmark, and that's the problem. It's only when we stop doing that that we'll understand how much we need a saviour. And so Jesus wants the rich young ruler to see this. 
So what he does is he then proceeds to challenge him. You see that in in the next part of verse 17. He says, uh, if you want to enter life, obey the commandments. You see that? Now, if you are an evangelical Christian at this point, you should be thinking, what on earth is Jesus saying to this bloke at this point? I mean, you know, what's the problem with that? We know that obeying the commandments is not going to get anyone into the kingdom of heaven, don't we? Why is that? Because we all fail. We all fail. And that is exactly Jesus' point. Uh, Jesus proceeds with this guy because in verse 18, uh, the young man says, okay, well, which ones? Which commandments do you want me to obey? Have a look at what Jesus says. He says, well, uh, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not give false testimony, honour your father and mother, and love your neighbour as yourself. And uh, the young man's Think about this and he says, well, all of these I have kept. What do I still lack? Now you see, as Jesus is listing through these commandments with this young fellow, in his head, what he's doing is he's just ticking them off one by one. Yep, haven't murdered. Yep, haven't stolen. Yep, haven't committed adultery. Yep, honoured my parents, etc. Now, Jesus... uh, What's going on here is that outwardly he may very well have obeyed those commandments, but the real question is what is going on inside his heart? What about his thought life? Jesus could have used any one of these commandments to to pierce this man's heart, uh, to, to, to show him that he is in fact sinful. You know, for example, on adultery, Jesus would have said, okay, fair enough, you may never have slept with a woman that you're not married to, but have you ever thought about how much you'd like to do that? Uh, Or you may not have killed anyone, committed murder, but have you ever thought of how much you'd like to do that? Uh, I I found it was interesting in the uh, the Pulse magazine. Did you you get a Pulse magazine when you came in today? Open it up and uh, turn to page four for a moment, because... uh, my old church, the Inverell Church, is is featured there in a little article. And uh, the reason for that is that the church set up a table at the local Inverell show and they called it, So You Think You're Good. Prove it. Take the test. Right? So what they did was they invited people to take the goodness test. And if you look at the uh, second paragraph there, it says that the team first asked people, would you consider yourself a good person and found that 92% of people considered themselves to be good? The next question asked, do you think you've kept the Ten Commandments? To which only 45% yes, said yes. So there's a whole swag of them think that you can be good without obeying the Ten Commandments, but nevertheless, 45% said, yeah, I've I've obeyed the Ten Commandments, all ten of them. But it says, much more was revealed, though, as specific questions about the Ten Commandments found that 99% admitted to telling lies, 86% admitted to stealing, 89% admitted to adultery of the heart, and 89% were blasphemers. And yet 45% of them said, yeah, I've obeyed all the Ten Commandments. (laughs) You see the problem there? 
uh, and, and then having exposed uh, the fact that people had fallen short of God's glory, the team from Inverell were able to then say, well, we want to tell you about uh, how you can be forgiven of your sin. And that's what's going on here. Uh, Jesus could have used any one of those commandments to expose man's sinfulness, but he doesn't. What he does instead is he, he waited because he wanted to place his finger on the one sin which this man most treasured in his heart. Have a look at verse twenty-one. Jesus answered, "If you want to be perfect, go sell your possessions." And give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. Now, why do you think Jesus was requiring this of the man? Do you think that the way to get to heaven now is to go and sell all your possessions and give it all the way to the poor? So that, uh, you know, if Jesus comes, when Jesus comes back, the person who's got all the possessions, they don't go to heaven. If that were the case, you wouldn't want to be the recipient of someone's presence, would you? Okay? Now, of course, that's not what Jesus is saying here. Uh, did you notice that when Jesus listed those commandments that he missed a few? That's not all of the Ten Commandments, is it? But what is, what is the first commandment? Can anyone tell me what the first commandment is? You shall have no other gods before me. Very good, for those of you who knew the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. Now, outwardly, this man appeared to be moral and upright. Uh, he did not think that he was a sinner. And so what Jesus did is he used that first commandment to expose the deep sin of this man's heart. He gave him a choice, didn't he? He said, here's the choice. You can have eternal life with your creator God in heaven forever or you can have your assets that you've got now for a few short years. Now, make your choice. Which one do you think you want the most? Eternal life with God forever and ever and ever, or a bit of luxury and comfort for a few short years? That was the choice. In other words, what Jesus did was he used that commandment uh, <clears throat> like a knife uh, to cut deep into this man's heart and to bring pain to his soul. But he had to do that because unless this sin was revealed, he would never understand that he was a sinner, that he needed forgiveness and he he didn't understand that, then he would never truly turn to God. And therefore he would never receive eternal life. See, it's like the doctor who says to the patient, I'm sorry, I've got bad news for you, and you probably don't want to hear this, but you have a terrible disease. And you never you need to accept that fact, because unless you accept that fact, then you're not going to let me do what I need to do to bring healing to you. And that's what Jesus is doing here. Now, I'm sorry to say that uh, this is not the message that you're going to hear in a lot of churches today. Uh, you must not presume 
you must not presume that all churches believe and teach the gospel because they don't. Uh, some churches appear to be very bright and very vibrant. Others may appear to be stone cold dead. Uh, that's not necessarily the, the text. Uh, there are churches in both of those categories where they do not in fact believe the full gospel and teach the gospel. There are many, many that do. Thank God for that. But there are many that don't. Uh, there are many church leaders who are very hesitant to impress upon people the issue of personal sin and acknowledgement of personal sin as a prerequisite prior to actually putting their trust in Jesus and becoming Christian. I actually debated this issue with a group of, um, a group of ministers, not Presbyterian ministers, but with a group of ministers a number of years ago. I debated this issue with them and I lost the debate. I failed to be able to persuade them that we need to talk to people about sin and judgment and repentance. What they said to me was that it is wrong and it is judgmental to talk to people about being sinful and that if we want uh, to win people, then what we have to be uh, is attractive to them and we've got to show them uh, first and foremost uh, how much God can bless them if they only come to God and join the church. They said that we must only focus on the love of God and uh, they denounced what I was saying, that you cannot understand the love of God, the saving, forgiving love of God, until you know what it is that the saving, loving, forgiving God has saved and loved and forgive you from. Right? So what I'm saying is that this is right in the Christian community today. It's true that uh, in evangelism, that the bait you use will determine the fish that you catch. I've said that before. And what that means is that if, if the message of the churches is that God wants non-Christians to come to him so that they will become prosperous and enjoy all of the pleasures of this life, if that is the message, then the question is, what kind of people are we going to fill our churches with? The churches will be filled with people who believe that they can they can serve God and serve money at the same time. The churches will be filled with people who are essentially greedy people uh, who have never truly repented, but they have their money, they have their luxuries, they have all of the things of this life, plus they have God as well. However. When the churches proclaim the holiness of God, the utter sinfulness of man, the cross of Jesus, and the need to not only put our faith in Jesus but to repent and to turn our lives over to serving and loving God no matter what the cost, then what are the churches going to look like? They will be filled with broken, humble, grateful people sincerely just want to honour God and do whatever God 
wants them to do, irrespective of what it costs personally to do that. Because they understand that life is all about honouring and serving the Creator forever. Now it is for that reason that Jesus exposed the sin of this man's heart. He wasn't being judgmental. He actually loved the man deeply. But what was the outcome? That was verse 22. When the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. Seems that the man wanted temporary wealth more than he wanted an eternal relationship with God. Now notice here that Jesus didn't run after him, did he? Picture the scene. Jesus has just spoken to the man. The man turns away and walks away from Jesus with sadness in his heart. Jesus did not call out to him. Jesus didn't say, hey, look, stop. Come back. Maybe we can negotiate about this. It's okay. Look, if you want to serve God and you want to serve your money as well, you know, that's fine. <clears throat> I'm sure we can work it out. Now, we might actually be tempted to do that. You know, he's wealthy, he's successful, he's charming, he's young, and don't we worship the youth culture? We would be very reluctant to let this particular fish get away. But Jesus does. Jesus lets him go. Jesus doesn't go after him. For to Jesus, to water down the message and to say to this man, hey, you don't really need to repent, well, that would have been simply the most dreadfully unloving thing that Jesus could have done for him. He would have given this man a false assurance and it would have given him no chance of ever truly coming to know God. Now, next week I want to come back to this passage again because, as I said, there is much more that needs to be said. But as I conclude this morning, may I say that uh, in this passage we see the master evangelist at work and we need to learn evangelism from him. We see here that Jesus both loved this man and challenged him at the same time. Now, I want to encourage you to be praying that God would grant you opportunities to uh, speak to people about Jesus, your neighbours, your friends, family members and so on. And you know what happens when you start praying for that? It actually happens. When we're talking with non-Christians about spiritual matters, we need to be prepared to speak to them the way that Jesus did. Now, that doesn't mean that we should be rude with people. In fact, <clears throat> we must not be rude with people. Paul says, let your conversation be, uh, be, be seasoned with salt, but full of grace. But neither must we compromise. We need to try to help people to understand that God is holy and that we have dishonoured him. How have they done that? How have they dishonoured him? It's because they value other things 
more than they value God himself. God is not the first in their lives as he should be. We should not be afraid to be clear with people about this. They may not necessarily like what you say, although it may make a whole lot of sense to them as well. It's not the point, one way or the other. Because, friends, understanding these truths may very well be the first steps towards a person truly repenting, truly turning their life over to God, and in fact gaining eternal life. When the rich young ruler walked away from Jesus, we are told that he was sad. Did you notice that? He wasn't angry. He didn't stomp away from Jesus, furious and cursing and so on. Maybe if he thought that uh, Jesus was tricking him, he might have been angry. But no, he was sad. I wonder why he was sad. Maybe it was because he knew in his heart that what Jesus was saying was in fact true. He knew that he was idolising material wealth. And he just couldn't let go. It may well be that he's grown up in a family where they have, where their philosophy of life has been that uh, the goal of life uh, is to build up your assets, build up your equity, build up your influence, uh, find security in those things, have security for the future in the size of your bank account, the number of blocks of land you own, the businesses you own, and so on. And that that uh, work ethic is seen as being noble and the right thing to do. And it's ingrained in this young man. At this point, he's not prepared to let that go. The Bible doesn't tell us if at some point in the future that he did let go, that he did truly repent and turn to God. We don't know uh, whether this man will be in heaven or not. Uh, if the only evidence we have is what we have here, then we have to say not. And one thing I think we can know for sure is that that night when he returned to his home and he sunk into his luxurious plush bed, he would not have slept well. He would not have been able to say, it is well with my soul. Jesus had unsettled him. And maybe that unsettling may have been the first step towards true repentance. In a few moments we're actually going to sing a hymn, It Is Well With My Soul. <clears throat> I didn't plan that. Uh, the only way that we can have wellness in our soul is if we are first broken before God humbly confessing our sin and our need for a saviour and rejoicing that in Christ he has provided the very thing which we need for restoration of our relationship with God through the death of Jesus on our behalf. But we must not have false assurance. If you are, sing, you are, if you are prepared to sing this, this hymn in a few moments, it says, It is well with my soul.
make sure that it is well with your soul. If you have not truly repented, if you have not truly turned your entire life over to God, if he is not number one in your life, then please do not sing this song. Please do not sleep well tonight. Please consider your need to repent.